Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, hello and welcome to you all. I'm Bill Glasgow from the Volcker Alliance, and this is Special Briefing. I'm coming to you today from OECD headquarters in Paris, and with me back in Pennsylvania is our co-host, Susan Wachter of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hi, Susan. Hi, Bill. It's a pleasure to join with the Volcker Institute on this special program today. You bet. And it is a special, special briefing. And I'll tell you why in a second. The topic at hand today is inflation. Maybe recession down the road. We don't know about that. But the impact of all of this on America's states and cities is the topic at hand, really. Today, the U.S. economy is roaring back as COVID-19 hopefully recedes. Unemployment is close to a 50-year low, and the price of just about everything is rising at the fastest rate since the 1970s. That's courtesy of the strong economy, supply bottlenecks, and the war in Ukraine, unfortunately, to name just a few contributors. We have a great expert panel for you to discuss this pressing issue. Mark Zandi from Moody's Economics, Arizona Budget Director Matt Gress, Build America Mutual Actuary Les Richmond, and Natalie Cohn of National Municipal Research. Welcome to you all. But first, we have the honor of spending a few minutes with Jerome Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors and the man at the center of the current inflation fight. Mr. Powell has generously agreed to deliver some videotape remarks for today's special briefing in appreciation of the late Paul A. Volcker, who was the Volcker Alliance's founder and, of course, the legendary Fed chairman who stamped inflation down after his appointment by Jimmy Carter in 1979. In recent Senate testimony, Mr. Powell called Mr. Volcker the greatest economic public servant of the era. And with that note, Mr. Powell, the floor is yours. Hello and welcome. I would like to thank the Volcker Alliance and the Penn Institute for Urban Research for the opportunity to say a few words of tribute to Paul Volcker today. Paul Volcker was truly a great public servant, and I'm honored to speak about his continuing legacy. Your topic for today is the impact of inflation on cities and states, which is an apt subject for such a remembrance. Paul Volcker distinguished himself through steadfast public service over a long and distinguished career. Among other challenges, he took on the role of Fed chair at a time when high inflation had been allowed to entrench itself in the national psyche. Chair Volcker understood that expectations for inflation play a significant role in its persistence. He therefore had to fight on two fronts, slaying, as he called it, the inflationary dragon, and dismantling the public's belief that elevated inflation was an unfortunate but immutable fact of life. The Volcker era of Fed history helped to shape the organization we are today. Chair Volcker gave us an example of how effective policy can be when deployed with vigor and intent. His actions also highlighted the critical importance of Fed independence. Paul Volcker knew that in order to tame inflation and heal the economy, he had to stay the course. He demonstrated resolve and integrity by refusing to be swayed by political expediency. And his success in taming inflation led to a long period of price stability, much to the benefit of the public he served. And in demonstrating the vital importance of Fed independence, he strengthened it further. Paul did much more than curb inflation during his long career, although that would have been enough to secure a legacy. He also engaged in economic diplomacy with the international community as the U.S. closed the gold window. And in the years after he completed his time at the Fed, among other things, he worked to reclaim assets for the families of Holocaust victims. Sometimes greatness is revealed by times of struggle, but it is also made clear in the day-to-day. -day. It lies in how we conduct ourselves, in what we prioritize, and in the pursuit of excellence in our work. Paul Volcker embodied these traits choosing each day to continue to work on behalf of the American people. Public service asks much of us, but gives even more in return. 
I'm grateful for organizations like the Volcker Institute, whose purpose is to encourage and support more people in pursuing this path. Paul Volcker left a proud legacy. He embodied the spirit of public service, keeping the core principle of our mission at the center of his work. Thank you. Well, very well said, and thank you so much, uh, Mr. Powell, on behalf of the Volcker Alliance, thank you for your time and your heartfelt remarks. For those of you in the audience who want to review this and the rest of the webinar today, it will be archived shortly and available on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And I know Susan Wachter, my colleague at Penn IUR, has a few words as well. So, Susan? Yes, we thank the chair for his comments, which are so apropos for the Volcker Alliance. And it's our great honor to be working with the Volcker Alliance. And in the name of Paul Volcker, who did so much for our country, the people who have been our panelists and the people who are our panelists today are also exemplars in their service to the nation. And it's great honor to bring them to this audience. And let's turn now to today's speakers. And our first speaker is Mark Zandi, who has brought us insights many times on this program, and we turn to him for insights today in this very interesting and turbulent times. Please, Mark. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Volcker Institute Alliance and uh, Penn IUR. Thanks for the opportunity. I'll say three things in my remarks. First, let me begin with a more upbeat perspective. And I think it's fair to say, given all the angst and German strang around recession risks, and I'll get back to that. But let me say the first, that the most likely scenario for the U.S. economy over the next 12, 24 months is for it to evolve into a self-sustaining economic expansion. So, you know, we got nailed by the pandemic. It's been two years we've been recovering. We're right on the precipice of getting into a self-sustaining economic expansion. And I think that is the most likely scenario. So what that means is we'll be at full employment, a lot of debate about what's full employment, how to measure it, but I don't think there's going to be any debate by the summer that we're at full employment. And I do think that inflation is peaking and will moderate over the course of the next 12, 18 months. And by the end of next year, 2023, inflation will be back pretty close to the Fed's inflation target, two to two and a half percent, depending on which inflation measure you use. I think Paul Volcker will be proud of Jay Powell and the Fed and their accomplishments in achieving. It's not going to be a soft landing. It's going to feel bumpy and a little ugly, but a landing nonetheless. We're going to evolve into self-sustaining economic expansion. Three key assumptions behind that optimism. First, the pandemic is going to wind, continue to wind down. Uh, that means Yes, there'll be more waves, but each wave will be less disruptive to the economy than the previous one. I think that's how things have played out here so far during the pandemic, and I expect that to continue. Businesses, households are getting better at kind of navigating through and managing through anything that the pandemic throws our way. A lot of risk around that, obviously. What's going on in China? No COVID policy. That's disruptive and calls into question this assumption, but I think that's a pretty pretty safe assumption. Assumption number two, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which really has scrambled things quite significantly. I'm assuming not that that's going to get resolved anytime in the near future. That doesn't feel likely, but I am assuming that the worst of the fallout on oil, natural gas, agricultural, and other commodity prices is at hand. There may be a day or two, a week or two, where given the turmoil, we see prices jump again, but I think we've seen the worst of it. So oil around $100 a barrel through the remainder of the year sounds about right to me and for it to start to moderate uh, next year. Obviously, a boatload of risk around that uh, you know, can construct some dark scenarios with regard to Russia and how this is going to play out, but that's a key assumption. And the third assumption is that the Fed's up to the task. Uh, the Fed's got a lot of work to do here, normalizing, raising interest rates. They've laid out a path, a very aggressive path for raising interest rates. And I'm assuming that they're gonna be flexible and adjust when they need to, and they're gonna be able to tighten enough to slow growth enough that it helps to quell the high inflation. But at the same time, it doesn't raise rates too fast, too far, that it undermines the economic recovery. You know, obviously that's, a 
big assumption. When we've been here in past business cycles, high inflation and high interest rates, uh, that hasn't ended well many times. But I think for various reasons that we can discuss, I think the Fed will be able to navigate through that. The second point I'll make, though, is that recession risks are high. So I would put the probability that we enter into a recession over the next 12 months of about one in three, and that is rising. A lot of this goes to the Russian invasion. I, you know, I, I had thought that the invasion and its fallout on oil and other commodity prices would be a negative for our economy, you know, hurts American consumers and households, low-income households in particular, higher cost of gasoline and food. But it, it helps to support our energy sector, which is large, and the net of all that would be a small negative to the economy. But what happened is that the higher oil prices have conflated with the already high inflation and inflation expectations that prevailed before the Russian invasion and the spike in oil prices, and it's driven up inflation expectations to a significant degree. And I think that's why the Federal Reserve went from they're going to raise rates, but in a kind of slow, orderly way to high alert, we're going to raise rates very aggressively. We're going to begin quantitative tightening, selling treasury mortgage securities. And obviously, with that shift in inflation expectations and monetary policy, it's raised the risks that the Fed navigating things gracefully and landing the plane on the tarmac, the economic plane on the tarmac, is going to be much more difficult. So recession risks are high. And finally, third thing I'll say is, I think state and local governments are in good shape to kind of navigate whatever scenario path we go down. Obviously, it'd be much nicer if we go down the sanguine baseline, the economy gets back to a self-sustaining economic expansion. But, you know, given the ample rainy day funds that states have been able to accumulate, obviously a large part of that due to the federal government support that's been provided throughout the pandemic in lots of different ways, directly and indirectly, States, localities are in about as good a shape as they they have ever been coming into something like this. So that does give me some solace that, in fact, the economy will be able to evolve into self-sustaining economic expansion that state and local governments can help support the economy through this, uh, what will be a bumpy period. So with that, I'll stop and I'll turn this back to you. Thank you so much, Mark. We will be back to you with questions which your excellent summary of your forecast raises. But let's now turn to Matt Bress, who's on the ground dealing with the potential recession risk and the current inflation. Matt, I I just noted that, of course, inflation hits different parts of the country differently, and you are perhaps hit the most with inflation today. What are those challenges? And we just heard from Mark Zandi of ample rainy day funds so that if a recession hits, you will be okay. And thank you very much for being with us. I know you're running for office, so this is particularly wonderful of you to be able to share time with us. Please go ahead. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Bill, for having me. I'm hoping to provide what a lot of state budget directors are thinking about right now in the context of the current economic situation. Year-over-year inflation in the United States and the Phoenix have reached new highs this year. And as mentioned before, they're among the fastest price increases ever recorded. Over the past 12 months, inflation in the metro Phoenix area was at 10.9%, three percentage points higher than the U.S. average and the fastest rate among the 23 metro areas tracked by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But as I've heard on the campaign trail and have heard from Arizonans, putting that into more of a realistic perspective of what is affecting Arizonans on a daily basis, the typical Arizona household has spent more than $4,500, the same goods and services over the past 14 months than they would have on average compared to 2020 prices. And that is uh, including nearly $600 more in gasoline alone. Rents and the cost of housing in Phoenix have increased by 12.4% over the last year, 2.6 times the average rate in the U.S. as a whole. And they are significant drivers of inflation in our region. And this impact will be felt for years to come, not only in terms of the cost of living, but also in our property tax structure as well. Arizona, in its property tax, has a mechanism in place that absent any action from a taxing jurisdiction, the rates will fall 
as the property values rise in order to meet the same revenue requirement. Only through a very public process can a taxing jurisdiction reverse the automatic rate adjustment. And this very process was born out of the property tax revolts of the 1970s and early 1980s. States without similar property tax mechanisms are going to likely see increased pressure in the coming year to provide relief, either in terms of tax law changes or rate rebates. Sales tax. Here in Arizona, inflation has increased taxable sales, and that has in turn increased sales tax revenues, which are a percentage of taxable sales. Taxable sales through March of this current fiscal year in Arizona are up 17% year over year. Of that growth, about 40% is due to inflation. So while the initial impacts of inflation may be good for state governmental revenues, they're going to catch up, especially when we talk about labor, the labor markets. For instance, 57% of our state budget is attributed to personnel costs, whether it's direct employees that we hire or outside services that we procure to provide certain contracted services to our, our citizens. This year, we've included over $200 million in the governor's budget for wage increases for state employees. That's the largest state compensation proposal that we've made in over a decade. So we're responding to the labor market. The state isn't immune from that. And we're seeing that in our budgetary process. These wage gains are going to create another financial challenge for state budgets around our pension systems, where the actuaries have failed to account for the abnormally large gains in wages, causing funds and their unfunded liabilities to increase. The pension risk is further exacerbated by the monetary policy aimed at taming inflation. If the stock market suffered due to higher rates from the feds, then you're going to see similar impacts on pension underperformance, which in turn creates higher unfunded liabilities, which requires states to raise their contribution rates to begin driving those down. As I mentioned, the, the Federal Reserve has those two-pronged goals around employment and inflation. And as they begin to take on that inflation uh, mandate, the extent to which that it cools the economy and does it trigger a recession are still pending out there. But we think that key things to watch in states to determine their recession resilience would be around things like the state's unemployment insurance trust fund and our rainy day fund balances. So between January 2020 and January 2021, state unemployment insurance trust fund balances dropped a total of $99 billion. And while many states since that time have taken steps to shore up their UI trust funds, as of April 2022, states are at 100% of their pre-pandemic levels. But the relative position of those solvencies vary dramatically by states. States such as California have left themselves open to significant budgetary risk. Their UI trust fund balance is sitting at a negative 593% relative to their pre-pandemic levels. Should the cooling effects on the economy elevate unemployment, then the UI trust fund is going to be the place where states are going to have to step up from a safety net perspective. And the solvency translates to a tax rates that businesses have to pay. We were very concerned about that. We used some of our federal fiscal dollars from the American Rescue Plan Act to improve the solvency of the trust fund along with some general fund deposits that lowered the business tax rate that they pay per employee. State rainy day funds have remained relatively strong during the COVID-19 recession, reaching levels at about 10% of the share of general fund spending. And that's a survey of about 46 states. So what we're seeing a lot of states consider, and we did this, is using a lot of our cash windfall to deposit um, those dollars into the rainy day fund for the economic uncertainty that might lie ahead. Just real quick, some other spending pressures that we're going to be looking at are Medicaid program, healthcare, not only in terms of the cost of healthcare, but utilization. During the pandemic, in exchange for receiving the enhanced federal match, we had a maintenance of effort where people, regardless of their eligibility, could not be removed from the Medicaid rolls. As we see you know, the maintenance of effort fall off and that colliding with any economic distress that's going to put some significant spending pressures on state budgets. And that's also happening at the same time the enhanced FMAP goes away. Education in the short term, we think, is going to be fine. They've received significant sums of cash from the feds directly, 
and governors have allocated funds to their schools as well. Our schools here in Arizona have received $3.7 billion of cash, and they've only expended about a billion and a half through January. So I think in the short term, that will help stabilize educational costs, catching kids up, and perhaps enhancing wages for teachers to retain and recruit. But once that cash runs out in 2024, I think all eyes are going to be on state capitals to see what to do moving forward. Big takeaway, there is uncertainty. We have a lot of cash, but use it wisely and try to prioritize some of those structural reforms, your UI trust fund, your rainy day fund balance, paying down any unfunded liabilities with your pension that will give you financial flexibility moving into these uncertain years ahead. Thank you. Thank you and very good advice, Matt. I want to remind everybody that you tuned into special briefing from the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR. And this and all of our past special briefings are available on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. And thanks also to the Century Foundation, the Volcker Alliance, and members of the Penn IUR Board of Advisors for their generous support. And now let's get back to inflation and what it means for the trillions of dollars in pension plans run by states, counties, and cities. Matt referred to this. Natalie Cohen, I'm sure, will also mention this in her talk. But lest you watch this closely at Build America, which ensures many municipalities bond issues. So Les, give us your views on, on how this plays out on $4 trillion in public pension assets. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Susan. Thanks to the Volcker Alliance and the Penn IUR for having me. Yes, Build America Mutual is a municipal bond insurer, which means that we have a long-term irrevocable commitment to step in and pay debt service if the bond issuer can't. And so one of the risks that we assess and take very, very seriously, and what I my role is at, at BAM is to look at pension risk. So what is pension risk? Pension risk is the risk that the costs of pensions and other post-employment benefits can grow to such a degree that they could crowd out an issuer's ability to provide services and in an extreme case to even crowd out the ability to pay debt service, which is something that we care very much about. So when we think about the impact of inflation, we think about how we assess the pension risk. We have a number of quantitative metrics that we develop, a lot of qualitative factors that we look at. We recently issued a, a white paper, which the Volcker Alliance is making available to attendees through its website, which goes into a lot of detail about how we look at all these different things, but I'll, I'll touch on a few here. One is the potential impact on plan investment returns. Now, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I know that markets are unpredictable. But in a higher inflation environment, the stage is set to have underperforming assets versus what the actuary is expecting. So when that happens, unfunded liabilities grow and the budgetary requirements that are needed to pay for them will grow as well. So uh, we view the potential for asset performance underperforming as a, as a negative. We also think a lot about funding adequacy in our review. So there's a few ways we do that. One is we think about the number of years under a funding policy, it should take a plan sponsor to pay down unfunded liabilities. That should be done over a reasonable period of time. If unfunded liabilities are growing, that period of time may grow as well. Also, each year, the actuary, when they're developing the plan's discount rate for GASB purposes, does a projection to see whether there's always going to be assets available to pay benefits. Sometimes there's a crossover point where assets run out before benefits do. So if assets are underperforming, that could actually accelerate a potential plan insolvency, which is a very serious credit event. <laughs> Lastly, on the asset side, I'll mention that if assets are underperforming, it may continue a long-time trend of pension plans embracing riskier asset classes in order to boost the returns in the pension plan. So that's uh, something that we would also view as a negative. Now let's uh, touch a little bit on what Matt was mentioning about salary increases. Salary increases are usually tied to some way to inflation, and so are pension benefits are tied to salaries. So if salaries increase at a greater rate than what the actuary is expecting, that would raise plan liabilities again, a negative on the pension risk side. Same thing with cost of living adjustments for retirees. 
Those are usually tied in some way to inflation. So when those grow at a higher rate than the actuary expects, again, unfunded liabilities, budget requirements, pension risk growing. Now, an actuary will look at a developing pattern and see if there's reason to modify their assumptions, if they think that that pattern is going to continue for the foreseeable future. Should that occur, which will lag the actual you know, near-term salary increases and COLAs exceeding expectations. So should that occur down the road, the actuaries may revise their assumptions. And at that point, there would be another sudden increase in plan liabilities, which would again, increase uh, unfunded liabilities and pension risk. So uh, kind of a negative one, two punch there. On the legislative side, there are pension plans that do not provide automatic cost of living adjustments to uh, retirees. And so in a case like that, where the plan sponsor recognizes that retirees' purchasing power is being eroded, they may have an effort to provide an ad hoc cost of living adjustment to retirees, which again is a sudden, potentially significant increase in plan liabilities. So it seems like all signs are pointing to the negative in terms of pension risk, in terms of increased pension risk. I'll, I'll end with one uh, potential positive, which is under the correct conditions, it's possible that public sector pension plans may be able to avail themselves of pension risk transfer, which means that you basically you pay an insurance company to provide an insured annuity to take the obligation away from the pension plan and lay it onto the insurance company. That's been in use in the private sector for many years not for the public sector because the difference between the premium to be paid for insured annuities and plan liabilities has just been too great. But if interest rates increase to such a degree that insured annuities become affordable for public sector plans, it's possible that that could begin to happen. So under a very tight set of circumstances that that would work, but it would be a positive, you know, when you take away the assets away from the plan sponsor, it leaves them exposed to less volatility in their budgets if the economy experiences turbulence. So with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Well, thanks very much, Les. And, and of course, this risk transfer doesn't really work for pension funds that are severely underfunded, like like the ones in New Jersey or Pennsylvania, Kansas, California. So it's sort of a good news and, and it's going to leave some people knocking with their noses pressed against the window, wondering why they can't get in, but that's life. You have to have a, a situation where the transfer of the assets doesn't detriment the remaining people that are in the plan. So you exactly. have to have a pretty well-funded plan for it to work. Exactly. With a, another perspective on what all this means, let's go to Natalie Cohn. Natalie, the Bond market, not just the muni bond market, but the bond market is not a particularly happy place these days. How is this playing out short term? How's it going to play out long term? What does it mean for, for issuance and for the ability of states and counties and cities and school districts to raise money for infrastructure? So thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. I'm very flattered and happy to be here with this group. I'm going to just offer a very quick anecdote that Paul Volcker's dad was the first town manager in my hometown after the Great Depression. And both Paul grew up in the town and was, was on the basketball team in high school. So a brief anecdote about that. I only learned of this actually relatively recently. I'm going to turn to the municipal market, as Bill mentioned, and talk a little bit about credit and then shift over to a discussion about the Infrastructure Act and a little bit about infrastructure. Over the last five years, we have experienced a sequence of extreme events that have used the word unprecedented multiple times. I'm doing searches on how often that's been used and what the patterns are, but we keep hearing about unprecedented events. I'll start with tariffs that were imposed in the last administration. Many of them are still in place. We then rolled into a severe pandemic that lasted much longer than people expected. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has affected production and increased the cost of many products to parts of the world, specifically chip manufacturers, semiconductors, and so on. And multiple extreme weather events, which we expect to be continuing. So I am going to slide in a little bit discussion about weather and how that too is affecting inflation. 
As Mark mentioned, remarkably on the positive side, state and local governments have maintained their strength fiscally and on credit quality. They entered the COVID period with adequate rainy day funds and reserves that helped to buffer a lot of the impact of the shutdowns and closures. Federal stimulus money also has to be credited to helping schools, states, city halls, and so on stay open and I would argue that they also likely saved off defaults that might have happened otherwise. In this context, a few things happened that Matt highlighted that we didn't really expect to happen. A dramatic shift from buying services and experiences such as travel, concerts, restaurants, we're all familiar with that at this point, over to goods purchases. The supply of goods, the ability to ship them through the ports and get them to the consumers took much longer. There were a lot of log jams. And however, the combination of the Supreme Court's recent Wayfair decision, which allowed state and local governments to charge sales tax on internet purchases, collided with the lockdowns and the need to stay at home and equip your work from home and your school from home facility at home, added to a significant unexpected growth in sales tax. The second trend that took place was the migration of people who had the means to leave dense urban and suburban areas and move to less dense cities and also less dense exurban and rural environments. That also collided with limited supplies for construction and housing prices have gone up significantly along with that property taxes to local government. So those two events were not expected, but do put the state and local governments in a relatively good fiscal position to face any recession or recessionary events that come forward. I would not be surprised, I think Matt alluded to this, to see some resistance as we enter the midterm elections and then again the presidential election, to see resistance to tax increases, particularly property tax increases. The situation in the economic environment does seem to look somewhat like the 1970s, the late 1970s, when we did have a lot of limitations and protests on tax increases. That said, I'm going to shift a little bit to infrastructure. There are some bright examples of companies and public partnerships that are bringing production back to the United States. I'll talk about a few of these. But we have to remember that new factory construction takes time to bring fruit, to add the jobs and so on. So there's a bit of a disconnect between the urgency and the need to recover and repair and the time it takes to actually put things into place. In 2021 and one year prior, 2020, municipal market volume topped 480 billion. Some of this was driven by higher issuance of taxable municipal bonds, which was largely due to the low interest rates, which are disappearing. This allowed municipalities to advance refund their tax exempt bonds with taxable debt and achieve savings for their budget. So that's a positive budgetary move, but it's not economic at this point with higher rates. So taxable debt increased significantly over the last two years, but debt issuance is already showing that it's coming down quite a bit. In the first three months of this year, tax exempt issuance or total issuance of municipal bonds, taxable included, was down 10% in January, 19% in February, and 18% in March. And that's just through the first quarter. I would not be surprised to see significantly lower volume through the rest of 2022. Maybe we'll end up 100 billion lower than last year, somewhere in the 350 range. Hopefully I'm wrong, but you never know. As is the case when primary market volume is sluggish, secondary market trading volume tends to pick up. So we do note that in the first quarter, secondary market trading volume was up 20%, 18 and 44% in January, February, and March compared with last year. 
The use of bond insurance has also gone up. We're now in the 7 to 8% range, where we were only 5% in prior years. Some of that might reflect the concerns that investors have about these various crises, whether they be climate or COVID and inflationary factors. So a few words about some infrastructure projects that could lead to recovery as they put sticks in the ground and grow. In January, Intel announced some plans to invest $20 billion in Ohio for two new chip factories. The project is expected to create 3,000 jobs at these plants and 7,000 construction jobs during the build-out period. Production is not expected to come online until 2025. I note that Ohio, in Ohio, many of the local governments levy an income tax, which is unusual, so they will benefit from the addition of jobs in the local area. Intel also intelligently is investing in partnerships with Ohio's universities, community colleges, and the National Science Foundation so that they can actually build the pipeline of people with the expertise to come and work in the plants. And of course, you can extend that in your imagination. There's going to be a need for more housing, transportation, and so on. So we're likely to see activity there. There's one significant caveat, which is that In Intel's announcement, they said that they will depend heavily on funding from the CHIPS Act, which is another congressional act that is in discussion in Congress right now. The CHIPS Act has not reached the president's desk yet, although the Senate first passed that legislation last June. The House passed its own version in February. And it's now organizing the conferencing of the differences on that bill. This is pretty significant. And the White House is urgently awaiting the congressional conference committees. Another example, the price of fertilizer has gone up tremendously. That was one of the major products of Russia and Ukraine that we're not seeing now. Brazil was one of the largest importers of fertilizer, and they export, that country exports soybeans, coffee, and sugar products, prices on that. Those products are likely to continue to go up. But in Iowa, there's a fertilizer project that Standard & Poor's recently upgraded on their bonds. That was based on high selling prices amid strong market conditions. Elsewhere, the federal government is also funding three public-private partnership projects through the Army Corps of Engineers, including the restoration of the ecosystems in Denver, Los Angeles, and the Port of Brownsville, Texas. The Infrastructure Act also provided funding to complete the Fargo-Moorhead Diversion Project, which will alleviate chronic flooding and overflow from the Red River. So these are all positive signs, may push bond issuance at the local level. I do want to mention that the Infrastructure Act, there was just this week, the White House issued guidance that all the infrastructure inputs, the products that are going into the various projects, must comply with the Made in America rules and the Buy America, Build America federal rules showing that everything was made in America or else the project has to petition the government. It's through the executive branch to get a waiver of some sort. So this is layering on some delays and some paperwork for those that have difficulty getting all the materials made in the United States. I would also like to just throw in some of the issues around climate change. I know ESG has been a big topic in the municipal market, and I would argue that we will be seeing new reporting requirements coming to municipal bond offerings in the near future. Central bankers have acknowledged the climate change. SEC Chair Gensler asked corporate borrowers to start reporting on climate risk in their financial statements. While the SEC, as many listeners know, cannot order municipal borrowers to report, the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board has requested comment on what data on climate they should be asking from borrowers. Thank you very much, Natalie, for those comments. And we'll come back to some infrastructure questions. I want to start with a question back to Mark and then have follow-up from you, Matt, on what happens if we have a recession We heard yesterday that Fannie Mae is projecting a mild recession for 2023. Do you think recession, if we have it, will be mild? And I'm going to add on to that. What's the risk of an ongoing mild recession or stagflation? And 
Matt, could you then respond to the risks this will pose to states like Arizona? Please go ahead, Mark. Susan, who's, who's was that Fannie? Yeah, they, really? Yeah, with a statement last night. They believe 2023, we will see a mild recession. Uh, well, that's Doug Duncan. Okay. That's Doug Duncan. Well, yeah, interesting. Okay. Hopefully he's wrong. Well, if he, he, he agrees with you, not 2022. I see. Okay. It's 2023. 2023. Yeah. Well, if we do suffer- If I may, mainly because the housing market is so strong in 2022 that there is very little likelihood that we'll see a downturn this year. Right. Right. That makes sense. Well, if we suffer a recession, I, I think it would be mild. Also a reason why I think we will avoid a recession. There are no major fundamental structural problems in the economy. You go back- For example, to every recession since World War II, you've got some part of the economy that's completely out of whack, a lot of leverage, a lot of debt, balance sheets are a mess. That's not the case. You know, the balance sheet of the American household, and here I'm painting with a broad brush, obviously a lot of differences across groups, uh, racial and income groups, but the American households are about as good as they've ever been. Leverage is low, debt service is lower, people have locked in, asset values are high. You know, they're going to come in a little bit as interest rates rise, but corporate balance sheets, strong, a little bit more barbell. You do have some businesses that have levered up, but that's more financial engineering, PE firms, you know, trying to juice up equity returns. But corporate balance sheets are strong and the government balance sheet, I think there's still plenty of capacity if we needed it. And certainly we talked about state and local. So this doesn't feel like we've got the imbalances, so-called structural problems in the economy that would argue for a you know severe and deep recession. I should also say in that regard, financial system is in fabulous shape, right? I mean, because of what happened after the financial crisis and the requirements to banks and other financial institutions to raise capital and improve underwriting, the system is highly capitalized, highly liquid, the system stressing to you know very severe scenarios, much more severe than you know what we've been through or could imagine. So it feels like we're if we do suffer a recession, it would be a modest recession. Quickly on stagflation, I think that's low growth or recession and high unemployment and high inflation. That's a policy choice. That's a mistake, right? Paul Volcker would really have a problem with us committing that error again because we've been through this. We've seen it. It's very painful. Ultimately, it ends in recession. It's very deep and long and much better for the Fed to push us into a near-term recession that's short and mild, bring out the inflation so that we don't get into that stagflation environment. That's the lesson we learned from the Volcker period. I think that's a lesson that's been clearly inculcated in Jay Powell and other Fed members, and I just don't think they're going to make that mistake again. So just very shortly, you see also inflation falling pretty quickly, but it's begun to be ingrained in some expectations, at least north of 3%. But you see that coming down so that by 2024, we have back to 2% or are we still at 3% inflation? Yeah. So I think that the major reason for the inflationary problems are supply side shocks, pandemic, Russian invasion. So if you buy into my view that the pandemic is going to fade and the Russian invasion disruptions are at their apex, then we're going to see inflation moderate. Inflation expectations are on the high side, but the Fed is working really hard to make sure that they don't become untethered so far. So good. That's the risk. That's why recession risks are so high. If they lose control here and have to jack rates up even more, then then we have recession. But so far, so good. If you look at different measures of inflation expectations, they're on the high side, but they're not to the point where you say, you know, game over. We're going in. Fed's got to step on the brake so hard that we're going into recession. Thanks very much. Very thoughtful. Mark and Matt, if you could tell us more about what inflation is doing to Arizona, it's really striking. You have 10% inflation. What does that mean for citizens of your state? I mean, in short, it means that they are feeling the pain at the pump. They're feeling pain at the coffee shop. I mean, I don't go into the coffee shop anymore to pay five, six, seven dollars for coffee. I'm I'm making it at home and I'm changing my consumer behavior. And you're seeing a lot of that happening as well. For us, we've heard that summer is going to be a really great time to travel. Airlines are expecting people to start spending some of their savings to go and enjoy this post-pandemic world where masks and testing and the nasal swabs and all those things are a thing of of kind of the past. 
Arizona would typically stand to benefit from the leisure and hospitality industry, except that this summer coincides with our low period of tourism, given that it's very hot here in the summer. But nonetheless, I think you're going to see a lot of kind of driving destination, and that's the market we're going to go after. Leisure and hospitality is a a big sector of our economy. It took a, a major hit when the pandemic occurred. But I like Mark's bullish optimism. You know, we we always want to plan for the worst and hope for the best. And what we've been doing in Arizona, and I think what a lot of other states hopefully are doing, is using a lot of cash. I mean, we have, get this, we started January when we introduced the governor's budget. We thought we were going to have $2 billion in the bank at the end of this fiscal year. We are, are going to be almost $4 billion over that same period. So it's a significant sea change because of all of the revenues that are coming in that we didn't expect. And what we're doing is paying down recessionary debt when we mortgaged the state capital back in 2010 for some lease purchase cash to keep the lights on. We're paying off that debt, lottery bonds that we issued for prisons that we built, school debt that we have. All of that's being wiped off the books. We're defeasing it. Even if we're not saving interest, We're saying, where is a good place to sock our money? And in budget land, it means that debt service payment we had to account for and budget for on an ongoing basis is now freed up for other costs. Maybe it's higher Medicaid costs. Maybe it's higher education costs or higher pension contributions. We've now created budget savings, if you will, that allows us to manage through some of these periods of economic turmoil. Rainy Day Fund, Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, we can't emphasize those enough. And then in this last year, we put a billion dollars into our pension funds to lower the unfunded liability. Significant. And we've proposed another $611 million to wipe out all of the currently known unfunded liability on the books. Of course, uh, there are some observations that our actuarial assumptions are assumed rate of return. So I do want to follow up on that, Matt. That's very helpful. Matt, clearly you have a state that's prepared. And as a bifurcation, I would like to turn to Les and Matt, Natalie on who are winners and losers and how is this preparation playing out across the states, particularly on pension funds. Les, we've heard some good news on Matt's pensions fund, but I'm sure there are states that are more vulnerable. Can you address that? One thing I will say is that we are seeing throughout the country instances of acceleration of pension contributions, which of course pays off down the road in interest savings. So definitely a positive when we see that. With the rising of interest rates, we're seeing kind of a flurry of activity in pension obligation bonds, which only work economically if the pension fund assets can out-earn the interest being paid on the bonds. So as the interest rates rise, it's getting less likely to be able to do that. So there's a bit of a rush to the market right now in pension obligation bonds. But with that, I'll turn it over. Natalie, do you have something to add there? Not on pensions. I think you covered it pretty well. The cost of living adjustments certainly react to inflation. That's why they were created in the first place. And market volatility on the investment side can be troubling depending upon how your assets are allocated. Actually, and that's exactly what I wanted to to follow up on was on the COLAs. Susan and I were debating this offline the other day. Are public employees, the pay increases that are being allowed under the American Rescue Plan Act, and also that you're just going to work out with with employees, are employees going to lose in real terms or are they going to keep up with inflation? And what does this mean for their purchasing power and, and for your budgets? Well, I mean, I was going to go in a slightly different direction, which is that almost without exception, states and local governments are short on employees. They are having a tough time filling positions. They are under where they were pre-recession, pre-COVID. And so they're looking to hire people. So they're trying, you know, higher wages may be offset by vacancies in some ways in the budgets. So is the increase, if there is an increase given, maybe they're giving some other types of perks. I know one city has offered to pay student loans off instead of increasing a pension contribution. So creative ideas like that are starting to pop up. Right. And to the extent that salary increases are greater than what the actuary expects them to be, that's going to raise your unfunded liabilities, which presents greater risk overall. But in terms of, you know, on the ground, retirees receiving COLAs, it really depends on the 
specific provisions of what the colas are. They may not get a full CPI cola. You know, they may get some percentage of that. So they may end up losing purchasing power anyway, even if they do have automatic colas. From a credit risk perspective, the danger is having a cola that's above and beyond what the actuary is expecting. So an ad hoc cola where there isn't a cola right now or raising colas above what the plan provisions for existing colas provide, which are, again, increasing unfunded liabilities and pension risk. Bill, if you don't have a question, I have a quick one on infrastructure. With rates going up significantly, that affects, of course, bond costs. We see that in issuance declining. Nonetheless, we've got this infrastructure funding from the feds coming in. How does that play out? What's the net of that? Natalie, you want to start us off? Yeah, I think, well, for one thing, actually planning a capital budget is a lot trickier with such inflated costs for construction materials, construction workers, whatever the contractors are going to be charging and so on, outsourcing, finding the people. So I think capital, long-term capital planning is just a lot more difficult in this kind of an environment. As I said, there are some bright spots with projects that are coming up that are in partnership with either the private sector, with the federal government, Army Corps. There's a recognition of the the need for the improvement. For sure. We are going to need that that cooperation going forward. But I think what Natalie projected in terms of municipal bond issuance would suggest there's going to be less money available, at least from the bond market, for infrastructure. And the the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, that does put $500 billion in new money into the economy, but this is over 10 years. It's a fairly modest contribution compared to the, you know, the 80% of infrastructure investment in this country comes from states and localities. If they're not borrowing at the rate of four or $500 billion a year, there's going to be less money spent, even as costs going up. So, you know, do the arithmetic. Stay tuned. This will be the topic of our next meeting. And for today, we want to thank our panelists who've been so extraordinary on the pressing issue of inflation and recession. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government's finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.